Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 76, bikes. If you know me and what kind of stuff I've been up to professionally over the past couple of decades or so, oh boy, you know you've been expecting this one. Let's start at the very beginning. At time of writing, I have been alive for 20,269 days. Among them, there are days that stand out. Memorable days. There are not many of these days in a life. I'm talking about whole days or large chunks of a day, not just events that took place on a certain day. Pivotal days that serve to define a person. I remember one day in particular. I don't know the exact date, and that always kind of bugs me. But I know that I was seven years old, and I know that it was summer. That puts it somewhere in the middle of 1975. I was the fifth kid with older siblings who were all adults and had long since moved out by the time I was seven years old. Basically, there was nobody around to teach me to ride a bike. And yet, I wanted to so badly. For all of her splendor as a matriarch, my mom didn't really help me out. She told me just to hold onto the fence in the front yard and kind of propel myself along and try learning that way. Didn't work at all. Out of the blue one day, one of my older brothers, 15 years older than me, showed up for a visit. He saw me sitting on the bike along the fence, holding on with one hand and just trying to get the damn thing rolling. He came out of the house. You don't know how to ride a bike yet? He was one of my siblings who I looked up to. I remember being embarrassed when admitting that I didn't. I mean, come on, I was seven. But then he said, we're going to change that. Come on. We went out into the middle of the sleepy suburban street. I had a banana seat on my blue bike with a high backrest bar also called a sissy bar, but I didn't know that then. He grabbed hold of it and told me to pedal. He jogged along behind me, keeping me upright. We went up to the corner and turned around to head back the other way. I don't know how many times we did it. Feels like a thousand, you know? I remember the light. It was afternoon, sunny, warm. I was concentrating so hard, listening to his advice on every run up and down the street. And then... I remember the sound, or lack thereof. On one run up the street, I suddenly realized that I couldn't hear his footsteps behind me. I remember, with the sharpest clarity, how incredibly difficult it was to turn my head and look back over my shoulder for the first time on a bike. That front wheel must have wobbled like mad as my motor skills had to quickly adapt to this new dance of coordination, balance, and momentum. Then I saw it. It remains one of the most indelible mental photographs in my mind, in my life. Far behind me, in the middle of the street, stood my brother Stephen, skinny as ever, with the bell-bottom jeans of the age, hands on his hips, his head cocked to one side, a massive smile on his face, happy, incredulous, almost in silhouette against that clear prairie light. It feels like I stared at him for days, but realistically, 
it was just a couple of seconds because I had to spin my head round and concentrate on that forward motion, that human-powered motion. I wish I could bottle that feeling I had right then, man. The whirlwind of realizations. Holy shit, what's he doing way back there? Holy shit, he's not holding onto my bike. Holy shit, I am cycling. I am riding my bike. I am the king of this world. I rode up to the residential corner and had to navigate a wide, unsteady turn. Another first for me, and I rode back down to my brother. He stopped me by grabbing the high handlebars. Same wide Cheshire Cat smile. There, now you can ride a bike. He turned and walked back to the house. I sat there on my bike, feet on the ground, watching him walk away. It was like that cinematic effect when someone walks away and the camera pulls back to make them become more distant more quickly. That residential street seemed like a savanna, and I was alone on it. There was only one thing to do. I pushed myself along with my feet until I gained momentum, and I started to ride. I rode up and down that street for hours until the sky turned pink and orange and the shadows grew long in the prairie sunset. I practiced all the basics. How to start riding by pushing on the pedal. How to stop quickly. How to turn. How to stand up and pedal. That was hard, I remember. How to ride super slow without tipping over. Late in the evening, I got cocky. I was slaloming along sharply, twisting the front wheel back and forth, testing myself. And too much at one point because down I went onto the asphalt. I walked my bike back to the house with my forearm bleeding with nasty road rash. My brother, ha, he thought it was cool as he bandaged me up, which was the best anesthetic I could imagine. The next day, there I was, back on the bike, and a life of cycling began in earnest. Now, later in life, thinking about his smile, I understand it. I have smiled it twice myself now. The event is epic for the person who masters learning to ride a bike, but it is also an extraordinary thing to witness, teaching someone to ride a bike and then being there at the moment they do it. My two kids? Oh, I remember. Equally crystal clear, the two moments when they both learned to ride. I can point to that specific square meter on this planet where it happened. The wobble, the uncertainty, the hope, and then momentum achieved, an Everest conquered. What about you? If you can ride a bike, do you remember that moment? Odds are that you do. I've asked people all over the world for years to tell me their specific story. And they can, in varying detail, but they can. Don't you think that that is just beautiful? If you think about it, learning to master this machine is the first major event of independence in our lives that we remember. We learned to walk and talk, sure, but we were too young to form memories of it. Learning to ride a bike is the major rite of passage. It is an operatic event like nothing we have experienced up to that point. It is a roar from the mountaintop. Look out, life, man. Here I come. You had better be fucking ready for me. After decades of car-centric urban planning all over the world, I take solace in the fact that so many kids still learn to ride a bike, even if they have nowhere to ride it afterwards. In Denmark, 85% of Danish kids can ride before the age of five, which you might expect in a cycling nation. In many places, 
numbers are down, absolutely, compared with, let's say, the 1960s, but they are still impressive numbers. It's bizarre if you think about it, but it's important. Parents and siblings experienced it, and they know how integral it is to teach it. Who doesn't want to pass on that gift of independence if they've experienced it themselves? Nobody. It also unlocks a whole new world. Unreachable places became reachable. The freedom of cycling becomes the freedom to explore. 70s kids, we came home when we were hungry. The bicycle was a key to the world, and the locks were all openable. Home suddenly became a place to return to instead of a place to be. Maybe you also remember your first bike. Huh, I do. That blue bike was my most treasured possession. I tried to convert it into a BMX, a sport and lifestyle that was peaking back in the late 1970s, but the bolts were rusty and I couldn't remove the banana seat. Not that it mattered because not long after, my bike was stolen. Another emotional milestone in a young life, your first stolen bike. I had leaned it against the house, by the steps, as I always did, far from the street up the driveway, but still visible from the street. But our neighborhood was safe. Doors were left unlocked. Gardening equipment could be left out at night. But one morning, my bike was gone. I remember the disbelief followed by the shock. I was gutted like a fish. My mom was sympathetic, but also surprised given the mundane nature of the neighborhood. She told me to walk around looking for it, which I did, for hours. My dad got home from work in the late afternoon and was filled in about the event. He wasn't a person back then who would tolerate begging and pleading from a kid. But when I pleaded with him to drive me around the neighborhood to look for it, he nodded. After dinner. And we drove, man. It was a heroic effort on his part. He ended up being an amazing grandfather. But back then, he left all of the child raising to my mom and he rarely interacted with me and my siblings. All the more amazing that he tolerated me saying, oh, let's drive down this street, or hey, let's try that back alley again. I recall the moment when he said, it's getting late. I don't think we'll find it. I protested, albeit resignedly. I knew the game was up. Strangely, I'm sitting here and trying to remember the next bike I got, but I simply can't configure it. It was used, I know that, my parents were frugal, but that's it. Maybe all the emotions involved in having a first beloved freedom machine ripped away from you blocks out all the memories of the pale replacement. Forty years and a few months after that summer's day, I finished writing a book about urban cycling, Copenhagenized, the definitive guide to global bicycle urbanism, a summary of more than a decade of my thinking and working in the field of bicycle planning around the world. I came to the profession randomly and unexpectedly but it has been a major part of my life for a very long time. A journalist who interviewed me once asked what it was like to be the person in the world who knows the most about this one topic. Well, <laughs> I guess it is pretty wild. I still learn new things about it, but the aha moments are fewer and far between. Most of the new acquired learning is extra material about existing topics. To be honest, I think it's kind of a dorky thing to know everything about. But yeah, I can't change that now. I remember when I was thrown headlong into this field, Starting back in 2006, I found that I was completely obsessed with it. I had two blogs which featured people cycling in Copenhagen. I now have over 40,000 photos of regular people on bikes ever since. I can tell you quite literally that for years, whenever I had dreams, they were about bikes and cycling. 
easily more than three years at the beginning. So much so that I would wake up and think, oh, for God's sakes, man, why can't I dream about something else? And so much so that I remember waking up one morning, probably around 2010, realizing, oh my God, I just had a normal dream. And it was even a little bit sexy. And I was so relieved. The constant dreaming about cycling gradually faded. Yeah, and now I'm back to normal. But this isn't an episode about all that bicycle planning. There's a book for that. And I've done countless interviews and videos online. This is about how the bicycle will be one of the things I miss when I'm dead. I'm always keen to point out in keynotes or interviews or to anybody who will listen that I am not a cyclist. I don't identify in any way, shape, or form as a cyclist. And I'm using air quotes that you can't see right now when I say the word cyclist. I don't have any fancy racing bikes and I don't own any cycling gear at all. No spandex, diaper shorts, gloves with no fingers, plastic hats. Nah, I'm just an urban dweller who uses a bike to get around. I don't know how to fix a bike very much, and I think I'll never learn. Doesn't bother me that much. In Copenhagen, we have 600 bike shops, so getting a bike fixed is easy and cheap. Again, my love of urban cycling is like my love of wine or sailing, as we've heard about in previous episodes. I don't know much about the bike, man. The object of so many people's desire, but I enjoy using it for transport. In French, they have two ways to describe people on bikes. A cyclist, which is the sporty guy with all the gear, and a bicycle user. I am the latter. I rode a bike around my entire childhood, until I was old enough to get a car. Such was the reality I grew up in. I was on a ski racing team when I was young and had a lot of others on the team who raced bikes in the summer. There was a film back then that captured our imaginations. Breaking Away, about an American in cycle sport. I tried racing for a season. It was cool, but it didn't really stick. Although I think a large part of that was that I only had a used 10-speed back then, and my mom wouldn't shell out for a cool new Bianchi. The peer pressure involved with having gear that isn't cool at all. When I moved away from home at 18, I brought my bike, that old 10-speed. I moved to North Vancouver and rode my bike down the hill to go to work every day. I don't remember seeing any other people cycling for transport back then. I used to bike in some other cities I lived in. Melbourne, Moscow, London, Paris. Oh, wait, now I remember Christmas 1994 in London. I rode a bike from Fulham to Piccadilly Circus in the morning, Christmas morning, down the absolutely deserted streets of the city, owning it in my solitude. But I rode bikes simply because I enjoyed it and, more importantly, it was the quickest way to get around. Even though there were so few other people doing it back then, there wasn't the same animosity against cycling in cities as there is now. I was an oddity, I guess. I've done stints as a pedicab rider and as a bike messenger because I've enjoyed that work and I could make my own schedule. Nothing more than that. Constantly learning more and more about the history of cycling in cities is a deep, endless rabbit hole that I love falling down. The pure poetry of how the bicycle transformed human society faster and more effectively than any other invention. It's hard to imagine how transformational the invention of this machine really was. It quite literally took over the world in a few short years. As soon as the form that we still know today, the diamond frame, was invented in the late 1880s and replaced that clumsy penny farthing. Apart from being all the rage, the bicycle 
liberated women for the first time. The American suffragette, Susan B. Anthony, she said back then, let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. It gives women a sense of freedom and self-reliance. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. The picture of free, untrammeled womanhood. The bicycle improved the human gene pool, man. According to a fascinating study, family names in church records in the UK were rooted to specific locations. Meaning, because of lack of mobility, you kept living in the same small district for generations. Not everyone could afford a horse. Until the bicycle rocked up and from the early days when bikes became affordable and launched their assault on the world, researchers can see that family names started showing up in other districts. 10, 30, 50 kilometers away, people could suddenly ride farther to look for work or a spouse and inexpensively. DNA spread to the winds on two-wheel magic machines. The writer H.G. Wells was equally enthusiastic. Every time I see an adult on a bicycle, I no longer despair for the future of the human race. Another legendary women's rights activist, Frances Willard, wrote a book in 1885 called How I Learned to Ride a Bicycle, wherein she also praised the bike for the freedom it gave women. She often used a cycling metaphor to urge other suffragists to action. She said, I would not waste my life in friction when it could be turned into momentum. Then there is this from a Danish novel called Gudrun by the Danish Nobel Prize winner Johannes V. Jensen in 1936. He wrote this, And like a large home, Copenhagen begins the day's work. Already down on the streets is one at home, with loose hair, long sitting rooms through which one travels sociably on a bike. In offices, in workshops, in boutiques, you are at home. In your own home, one large family that has divided the city among itself and runs it in an orderly fashion, like a large house, so that everyone has a role and everyone gets what they need. Copenhagen is like a large, simple house. I live in that house, and I travel sociably on a bike. There are more poems, songs, literary references, and films featuring the bicycle in Danish than in any other language. <laughs> I could spend the next 30 minutes reeling off quotes about the bicycle, but let's move on. Because I kind of feel like I'm getting off track here again. What am I going to miss about bikes when I'm dead? I'm not a cyclist. I can't fix bikes beyond a flat tire. But man, I just like bikes. I believe in the bike as the most important tool in our urban toolboxes to transform our cities for the better. As both a symbol of what we should be doing, but also a practical tool. I love the new bike sensation when you ride a brand new one for the first time. So quiet and oiled and perfect. The feeling when you're on a new bike and then you take your hands off the handlebars for the first time just to test the balance of the construction. I am fond of vintage bikes. I have a 1947 Husqvarna bike and a 1950 Crescent, both Swedish. And I love the solid design of both. But I also like thinking about all the people that have ridden both of these bikes through the decades before they ended up under my ass. That Crescent bike is my favorite. Despite its age, it is solid and so well balanced. I love the timeless design of vintage bikes. I don't anthropomorphize bikes. You know, give them a name to make them appear human. You won't hear me say, 
I'm going to take Judy out for a ride. <laughs> I get it. I get why some people like to name their bikes. But you know what? I just think it's weird, man. I live in a city where 400,000 people ride a bike each day for transport. Most of them are bicycle users on effective tools. Very few will give their bike a name. Bikes for us in Denmark are like vacuum cleaners. We all have one. We all use them. But they are merely important tools for making our daily life easier. We don't fetishize them, polishing all the vacuum cleaners in our stable, keeping them oiled. I don't really go on cycling holidays at all. An American friend commented once that, hey, in America, man, we drive cars all week and then we go for bike rides on the weekends. In Copenhagen and other bicycle-friendly cities, yeah, you know what? We ride bikes all week. And if we have a car, that's the weekend thing. Totally reversed. Using it to go to the summer house or somewhere new. If I go to a city with bike infrastructure, I'll ride a bike for transport, sure. But sitting on a bike every day on a holiday is simply not my thing. I do it every day at home. I want to do other things when I'm on holiday. I have studied and observed the aesthetic details of urban cycling for 20 years, and I can't unsee it. Every single day in Copenhagen, I watch it all, constantly. For example, the different postures people use when waiting at the light. There are seven standard ones. Then there's the magical moment that occurs every time when people push off with their foot, and that foot instinctively finds its way to the pedal to ensure momentum. That intuitive muscle memory. The way people multitask on bikes, eating a sandwich, lighting a cigarette, taking off a jacket, all while riding. People yawning as they head to or from work. I always say that if you don't have people yawning on bikes in your city, then you are doing it wrong. While riding through the city, I like how I and others learn how to hit green lights the whole way, hacking and reading the city's engineering. On that stretch, oh, you'd have to take it easy. But yeah, on the next stretch, you know you have to muscle it in order to hit the green light. It's like an urban video game, and it's winnable. From my semi-permanent perch outside my local wine bar, I watch the urban theater roll past. Never gets old. I study the psychology and behavior of bike parking from that perch. I like going on a date on a cargo bike. Then there's the whole complex collective subconscious world of passing each other on the protected bike lanes. People listening, sensing, navigating. It's all a subtle ballet. Even after all these years, I still get a thrill when I'm standing next to the world's busiest bicycle street here in Copenhagen in the morning rush hour, amazed at the insane numbers of my fellow citizens on bikes. The quote from H.G. Wells invariably creeping into my head each and every time. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. This episode should have been more structured, considering I've been staring at it for so many years and working to make other cities bicycle-friendly and writing entire books on the topic. But I guess I've noticed that once I remove the urbanism aspect, I default back to the simple details that tickle me constantly. The bicycle in cities is pure poetry. It's operatic. It's organic. It's timeless. Even though I'm not a cyclist or a bike fetishist, the bicycle has always been an integral part of my life, a fifth limb. If I were to be buried like a Viking chieftain or an Egyptian pharaoh, I would want you to put a bicycle in my grave with me. I would rock up to Valhalla and park my bike outside and head in for a feast. And remember, if you don't see the bicycle as part of the urban solution, then you are part of the problem. Bike life for the world.
You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Kobel-Anderson. Thanks for being out there. <laughs>